Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Bubs, and this is season two, episode number 29. And today I have the pleasure of sitting down with nutritionist and researcher Miguel Mateas to talk about the microbiome and the gut-brain axis. In this episode, Miguel will discuss the dynamic ecosystem of the gut, how certain bacteria are attracted to certain conditions, and the effects of processed and ultra-processed food on the gut. He'll also discuss how exercise impacts gut diversity, as well as new research on how mindset may be playing a large role in impacting this effect. Miguel also dives into the roles of short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, amino acids like tryptophan, the vagus nerve, etc., and how they are intimately involved in this gut-brain communication. Terrific insights here and metaphors as well from Miguel to help paint the picture of a very, very complex topic. You can link to the research paper discussed in this episode at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, the simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on this topic of digestion, then definitely circle back to our first episode, season one, episode number one with Mike Mutzel on the impact of microbiome on health and weight loss, or season one, episode 18 with Dr. Tommy Wood on the impact of the gut on athletic performance. Terrific. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. If you want to get caught up, you can also circle back to our year-end review show, season one, episode 52 from last year. And if you're a regular listener, glad to have you back. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get things rolling. Season 2, Episode 29. Enjoy. My guest today is Miguel Toribio Mateas, a nutritional medicine graduate and current doctoral researcher at the Faculty of Health and Education at Middlesex University in London, where he's studying the effects of nutrition and lifestyle on the gut-brain axis and aging. Miguel, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. How are you? I am great, and I'm uh, definitely looking forward to diving into today's topic of gut microbiome, assessment tools, and, of course, impacts of nutrition and lifestyle. But maybe before we dive in, can you tell listeners a little bit more about your background and how you became interested in this area? Sure. So I've been in clinical practice in nutrition uh, for over 10 years. And uh, um, for probably the last four or so, I've been um, seeing more and more interest in, in gut health. Um, at the same time, I finished a, a master's in science, in clinical neuroscience, a couple of years ago, uh, focusing on brain aging. And uh, uh, I touched upon the 
connection between the gut and the brain and I was quite fascinated by the kind of like small detail. Um, so I had the opportunity to talk uh, with a professor that you will know from social media. He's very active, Team Spectre from King's College. And sure. uh, he had this thing going on called Map My Gut, which is now it's metamorphosed into what is the uh, predict study now. It's going to be the largest randomized control trial using partly the a database of uh, twins that he's got, about 14,000 people in his database uh, of uh, twin studies, but also a, a subset, another additional cohort of people who are going to be uh, participating in the study and working out um, how food actually alters your, um, uh, your gut bacteria composition and, and also the kind of things that the gut bacteria will do, like short-chain fatty acids and things like that. And also uh, how that... Um, how, how those changes actually change your biochemistry and particularly blood sugar and uh, uh, ketone bodies potentially, glycated hemoglobin and so on. So I had a, a really good chat and he had, he had this thing kind of like the prequel to the predict study going on called Map My Gut. And uh, I jumped into that and I was working with him at King's in the, in, on Map My Gut um, uh, for a year, over a year, a year and a half uh, or so. And uh, so I saw hundreds and hundreds of different tests from people. And uh, I thought, wow, this is um, a minefield, basically. There's a lot more uh, to the gut-brain connection than I had anticipated, uh, which makes sense because when you're working with nutrition and people come to your clinics, um, who doesn't see anything to do with either the mind or the gut, basically. Most people have got gastrointestinal things going on, whether it's, you know, bloating or uh, not digesting food properly or constipation or diarrhea or a combination of all those things. And there's always going to be a thing about stress or anxiety, uh, these kind of things that people experience in their head, and those two are connected. Uh, and I, for me, the connection between the brain and the gut was very clear. That kind of anxiety inhibits your digestive power. But the, the, the gut to brain connection, which is much more powerful, uh, only became apparent to me when I, uh, as a result of my master's uh, research and uh, the um, and the work with Tim. So, um, so yeah, so it's, uh, um, uh, it's probably been a, a journey of discovery of uh, all my clinical practice career, uh, but uh, specifically the last four years or so that I really jumped straight into it. So, um, yes. and at the moment, I'm just um, I'm focusing on uh, a couple of areas that I'm sure you're going to ask me about. I'll let you speak as well. All <laughs> <laughs> no, good. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously, yeah, the research on the gut microbiota and microbiome over the last uh, decade has been uh, really uh, changed how a lot of people look at things. And of course, your recent paper, Harnessing the Power of Microbiome Assessment Tools as Part of Neuroprotective Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Interventions. Now, in that paper, you mentioned you know, gastrointestinal dysbiosis being consistently reported in a lot of these metabolic diseases. Can you dig into that a little bit deeper? Yeah, so dysbiosis, just for anybody who um, um, doesn't know what it means, basically, dysbiosis uh, means uh, uh, disrupted life, basically. And uh, um, it means that the, the ecosystem in your gut, that should be a bit like a forest with uh, different animals and different predators and different animals that get eaten and all this kind of stuff, doesn't quite happen as it should happen in a 
what the ideal healthy gut should look like. So you could have a forest that has got very few trees of one kind and loads of trees that are, you know, purple instead of green and, and you haven't got enough snails. So then the birds get hungry and, you know, this, all this kind of that disruption in the in the fauna and flora, that when you actually look at what is happening in the gut, it's actually very similar. It's an ecosystem that is alive and changing all the time, like a garden or a forest, and that you need to feed it and you need to water it. And uh, and it changes in temperature and pH. And there's loads of stuff going on if you get into the more technical kind of a language, this, this constant allostasis or dynamic um, uh, uh, balance going on all the time that you, you're like a bit like a plane kind of a cruising at, at different altitudes all the time to just keep them keep, keep balanced and the gut is just the perfect example of this complex adap- adaptive system that that is changing um, all the time to accommodate what goes on in it so and it's a bi-directional thing so the gut bacteria uh, are certain gut bacteria are attracted to certain conditions. So it's almost like you go on holiday to a hot country because you fancy a bit of sun. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, your uh, gut uh, is only going to, is also going to change as a result of what gut bacteria are coming in from the air and from the food that you're eating. That's why food is so powerful. But not only that, and this is the most fascinating stuff that I'm kind of like focusing on right now in my current research, is the is what your thoughts are and what your state of mind uh, is going to be doing to your to your gut bacteria. Um, so there's a, this, all these kind of like complex relationships between different organs, and particularly the brain and the central nervous system and the gut. Yeah, it's it's really compelling stuff. And of course, you mentioned the food we eat having a huge impact, and of course, ultra processed food being so um, playing such a strong role. I recently saw a stat showing that in the UK, about fifty percent of all the food consumed by folks is ultra processed. Um, mm-hmm. Can you uh, shed some light on how this then impacts um, gut microbiota diversity? Sure. So, ultra processed foods basically uh, are kind of like quite trendy at the moment just because there's this thing called the Nova classification that's been published by a guy called Monteiro at the um, uh, university, top university in Brazil uh, with a team of experts that uh, has looked at um, the, the what they people in Europe eat in 19 European countries and they kind of like did a, a a, a very complex analysis of all the kind of uh, the, the shopping baskets of uh, Europeans, basically, and they came up with this uh, ranking of where in Europe people eat more food that is made from scratch and where people are more attracted to convenience food. So, you know, grabbing something that's in a box and you can just put in the microwave and, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's it. It's easy. So uh, the more ultra-processed the, um, the food the more uh, uh, availability of refined carbohydrates is going to be in that uh, food. And t- typically as well, because of the, the processing um, of the food, there's going to be this thing called the bliss point that manufacturers work towards, which is basically a perfect kind of uh, flavor in the food that's going to be salty enough or flavorful enough and sweet enough. So pick up that hyperpalatability really, make us going back for more. 
Exactly, exactly. That's it. They want you to buy the food again and again. They want you to buy that product again and again because it's delicious. So they really do a lot of research on that, on that kind of like bliss point. And it's basically a combination of the certain fats and certain manufacturing processes and the uh, consistency that may involve various different gums and preservatives and uh, things like monosodium glutamate and enhancers and all of this kind of stuff that is a little bit, you know, the food may look very natural. Like the product on the plate may actually look very natural, but it may be fairly processed compared to something that you can make at home. So when you have that kind of situation where you're feeding your bacteria, and again, going back to the analogy of a, of a forest, and you go to the forest and uh, there may be some, you know, some carnivorous animals there, maybe some, you know, some lions, and you feed them something that is completely processed, they are not going to feel very satiated for very long. They're going to want more very quickly as opposed to giving them a whole animal for them to get into and have to peel the skin from the animal and get to the organs and, you know, and get the meat, you know, it's going to take them a little bit longer. Sure. If you look at that situation in the gut and you feed your gut foods that are, have got roughage, they've got fiber, they haven't been processed by intensive cooking and pasteurization. So your bacteria need to chomp at the uh, foot a little bit ha uh, harder in order to get the nutrients out than if it's all kind of been processed and uh, pre-cooked and then cooked again. And you know how the macronutrient compositions in food actually alter uh, by heat and uh, light exposure. So uh, it's kind of like shortening the, um, the, the, the process whereby the bacteria actually get energy out of the food. So not only are we contributing to more uh, situations where your blood sugar may be dysregulated and you are contributing to putting on weight and ultimately obesity and so on. You're also doing that by means of allowing your gut bacteria to draw more uh, calories out of the food. And this is known that you know certain types of bacteria like the bacteroidetes, for example, are very um, calorie hungry. They, are, they were there when we were um, for a reason when we were hunter-gatherers and uh, we didn't have food all the time, so you could go for a couple of days without a lot of food, and if all you could grab was a handful of um, uh, um, berries, for example, those bacteria were really useful because they allowed you to get loads of calories out of those and make the most out of them. But in a situation where you have supermarkets everywhere, open 24 hours a day, and you can get food all the time, they are not so useful anymore. So this is why ultra-processed foods actually contribute to a situation where certain types of bacteria that are very uh, good at getting calories out of food, and they grow a lot as a result of being given this almost fertilizer kind of food, they grow out of control. So you could have spikes of certain families that grow out of control, and they crowd out other families that are in the gut normally, but in lower numbers, so they feel a bit marginalized. So, you know, they go into a bit of a ghetto, like tiny little amounts of these families only survive. And it just happens to be that those are actually very important and they are very anti-inflammatory and they contribute to the overall balance of the ecosystem in the gut. So you basically just alter the whole of the ecosystem as a result. Terrific. And of course, we see uh, you know, unfortunately, people who are struggling with weight gain, struggling with metabolic conditions, struggling with chronic disease, we tend to see, you know, that lack of diversity. Uh, and of course, mm -hmm. you touch on in your paper as well, just the impact of exercise on the gut microbiota. Could you touch on that and how physical activity impacts uh, diversity and abundance? 
Yeah, so this is a, a booming kind of area of research at the moment. It's a, a scientist, the short of it, really, because, you know, I'm going around the houses with my answers. I'm, 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 <laughs> no worries. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm British and Spanish, but I'm very Spanish in my answers. If you can say something in 500 words instead of two words, I'll say it in 500 <laughs> words. Terrific. So that's the Spanish in me. <laughs> so um, basically, the uh, uh, this area of research, the short answer is that Scientists don't really know why this happens yet. They are kind of uh, hypothesizing what the, the actual mechanism may be. Um, one of the hypotheses is that uh, because you actually change your frame of mind when you're exercising uh, and you're more in the moment, at uh, that time you actually start producing, when you're exercising, you start producing more of the anti-inflammatory cytokines in the body. You know, you've got this kind of... Uh, uh, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory kind of like um, seesaw all For the sure. time in the body and at the time that you exercise you promote more of an anti-inflammatory situation than a pro-inflammatory situation and you remember I was talking about the the environment that is provided by by your own gut to bacteria as an invitation to settle there or to go on holiday for bacteria that don't really settle but they just travel through you for a few days. So people who are more inflamed uh, don't offer the kind of uh, glossy brochure that you want to, you know, you want to uh, browse and say, oh, that looks like a really good gut. I'm going to go through it. I'm possibly I'm going to colonize it. Uh, some bacteria will go through it and they will think, okay, this is just too rough an environment. It's very hostile. I'm just going to go through this gut and come out the other way. I don't want, I don't really want to stay here. And that's what happens in guts that are uh, typically of people who have got uh, fat around the middle, which is very um, active um, hormonally. It's, uh, it's producing loads of these short-lived hormones called cytokines that are um, uh, known really for their uh, inflammatory power. Although, as I said, we've got both inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. So it's all about the, the levels of inflammation, but your frame of mind and how exercise makes you feel and the actual kind of like quality of how your mind feels after doing whatever you're doing, whether it's running, training in the gym, doing a yoga class, all of all types of exercise have got the ability to, to make you more focused and clearer in your thinking. And that is also a result of uh, lowering levels of free radicals in the in the brain, basically clearing free radicals in the brain. Um, so there's a complex relationship between the brain and the gut in, in this case. Um, yeah, it's interesting stuff we see, obviously, in team sport, we see in endurance sport. Yeah, with, with exercise, we tend to get that increase in diversity, increase in abundance. But of course, once we take things to sort of an elite level and we're really pushing hard, um, I recently had Dr. Tommy Wood on last year. We were talking about ultra endurance athletes. And of course, that duration and intensity of exercise tends to promote more of a leaky gut and, you know, I think exactly. it was almost 87% of the uh, participants. So, you know, is there a tipping point there? Because I know we all have exactly. a little bit of leaky gut, but where is that, that tipping point potentially for when things start to go wrong? Well, exactly. And this is, uh, I, I cite a couple of papers on that uh, in, in, in my paper that you've been talking about. So there's always going to be the situation of um, homeostasis, which is balance or so looking for balance and allostasis, which is balance that moves about. So it's kind of like a timeline of balance, balance that is not static, it's kind of like moving along. And this is a, an idea that is very 
well explored in kind of a functional medicine, lifestyle medicine circles. And uh, when you're looking at that allostasis and you're looking at leaky gut, leaky gut can be there as a spike that then basically goes down and it can be measured by means of uh, things like occludine and sonulin and so on that are available by different labs. You know, they're used in academia just to measure things in, in experiments, but also commercially there will be labs out there that will give you that kind of reading. And if the, the, when you're working with a, a, a client privately or with, you know, with a, an elite team, an elite team may have a lot more dollars to put towards testing. So they may feel like they want to test at various times during whatever course of training you're doing with them. So you are basically uh, um, able to plot a bit of a timeline as to what their gut is doing in terms of uh, uh, leakiness or permeability. But uh, people who come to see you like once because they have a situation with their gut and uh, you know they want to explore what going, what's going on and you may tell them they've got leaky gut, on the basis of one single reading, you cannot really tell them that they've got leaky gut because there could be a situation where sonulin and oclidin may be really high as a result to exposure to, I don't know, antibiotics or um, uh, ibuprofen or uh, pollution or anything like that. And then uh, a few days later, it actually goes down because it's got, it's got the ability to repair itself. Sure. So this is something that's uh, that's quite interesting that, you know, there's a, and there's all, almost like a hormetic kind of a curve as well. So exercise is a perfect example of uh, hormesis. So a little bit of exercise is going to uh, activate your uh, gut immunity, is going to uh, enable that ability to repair, to produce a little bit of uh, certain molecules like the... Um, uh, secretory IgA, which is part of the normal mucus layer in the gut. Uh, it's also going to simulate some of the bacteria or provide the environment for the bacteria that produce butyrate, which is highly anti-inflammatory. It's a waxy, oily kind of uh, substance that's 80% um, of butter is butyrate. So you have an idea of what this consistency is going to be like. It's almost applying a moisturizer to your inside <laughs> of your gut. So it's repairing that kind of cracks that, you know, you can think about permeability as little holes or cracks. You're, you're applying this moisturizer and kind of like soothing them, smoothing them over like a, like a plaster kind of a, on a crack on a wall. Um, and, uh, um, and too much exercise, if you have somebody overtraining, can actually trigger such an amount of free radicals that can break those cracks even more. So it can actually trigger spikes in sonulin that stay high. So rather than actually just a spike that then goes low, it basically just triggers the baseline actually raises. And that's been documented in a few studies actually, that uh, um, it's a reality basically. If you overtrain over a sustained period of time, you're actually contributing to leaky gut. So it's all about training hard, letting your body repair, and then training hard again, but enabling that ability, building in that, that ability for the for the body to repair. And we're very aware of the muscles as something that we need to allow for them to repair in order to break again and grow again. And don't forget that the gut is the biggest muscle in the body. So you've got a lot of muscle in the uh, in the colon that needs to repair as well. So you need to treat it with that kind of mentality as well that is going to have that 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 necessity to repair as well. Absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, definitely, as you said, sort of the 
Endurance athletes, high volume training, typically consuming more simple carbs, or tend to be the ones, you know, in my practice that I see that are a bit, bit more at risk of this uh, going down this route of kind of excessive hyperpermeability. Um, mm -hmm. But if we can circle back for a moment, maybe talk about the microbiota gut brain axis and the different routes of communication along this axis. You sort of touched on a few here, but things like the vagus nerve, the immune system, short chain fatty acids, tryptophan. Can you walk folks through how that how that works? Sure. So. Uh if you think of the brain and the gut as being connected by a cable, and uh, uh, basically there are two ways of communication from the bottom up and from the top down. And from the top down, your brain is there, you've got a cable that comes up from the, uh, um, the central part of the brain, the um, hippocampus and the uh, um, uh, hypothalamus, a combination of the two. So you've got various different strains coming from those areas and going all the way down to the gut. And it's a very thin cable. It's almost like, uh, you know, in the old days of uh, dial-up, you know, if you still remember having a dial-up <laughs> yeah. model. Unfortunately, you know, like, I do. <laughs> you know, uh, so if people who are 20 or so probably don't remember that, but, you know, it's a dial-up situation where the connection is really crap and it takes forever to get a page loading on your computer. It's very simple messages. So the very simple messages that go down from the brain to the gut are very binary. They are very black and white. They're very yes and no. So basically kind of a fight or flight response. So either produce cortisol or do not produce cortisol. Um, um, neuromuscular control of peristalsis. So, you know, uh, move the muscle. So the stool actually moves towards the anus and comes out and you have a bowel motion or do not move the muscle. Um, production of serotonin and dopamine. So you've got about 95% of serotonin, which is the happy kind of a uh, slightly sleepy, happy neurotransmitter, almost like a hippie kind of situation. You want to hug everybody when your serotonin is high. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, you want to give them a cuddle, and tell them they are lovely and you love them. That's the kind of like loving, um, happy neurotransmitter. 95% of that is actually uh, produced in the gut. And the old school of thought was that it stayed in the gut. It was almost like like Vegas, you know, serotonin happens in the gut and stays in the gut. There you go. It's not like Vegas at all. What we're finding out is that various metabolites of serotonin um, actually travel systemically and they do various different things and they end up in the brain as well. And there's kind of like a feedback mechanism between the gut and the brain for serotonin. So, but again, going back to the very simple messages from the brain, what you're getting is gut, you need to produce serotonin, or gut, do not produce serotonin. It's like a switch, on and off, on and off. Secretion of mucus is the same. You know, there are various different substances that you produce in the in the gut. Um, one of them is like a complex of these things called exopolysaccharides, like complex sugars that make up like a, a layer of or a film on top of your, uh, of your gut lining to yep. protect it. And that's the mucus, basically, and uh, and it's got a number of different things. So you see that produce more mucus or produce less mucus. Uh, very simple messages. Now, the bacteria um, uh, in your gut communicate with the uh, uh, with various different receptors in the gut lining and also with the nervous system. So you've got this vagus nerve, which is the very big cable that goes from the adrenals, the adrenal glands on top of the kidneys, those guys that are basically producing cortisol, um, um, adrenaline, or you call it epinephrine or norepinephrine, and you know that those three substances mainly, although they also take over in 
all the age for females and they produce estrogen as well and they can produce a little bit of testosterone for, for male mm-hmm. and so on but mainly cortisol epinephrine and norepinephrine and those are going to kick in when you have to escape danger so uh, they are the primal kind of uh, um, producers of hormones that have been there from the world go when we were um, early or primal humans and we needed to either fight animals for our life to get food or fight other humans or escape the danger and they're very they switch into this area of the brain called the amygdala which is where you process the very primal kind of feelings fear uh danger uh not fluffy feelings like love and compassion and things like that kind of like very quite quite brutal feelings you know something that you require to do something very very quick to escape danger or to fight uh so you've got that cable and we talked about this dial-up crappy thin cable that looks like nothing coming from the brain down. And from the from the bottom up, from the gut up, from the adrenals up, it's a chunky, uh, thick brain that's almost like a LAN cable. So you've got broadband connection. You've got <laughs> really traveling like, quickly. It's like fiber. You know, you've got fiber optic. You know, going all the way into the amygdala very quick because it needs to. The brain needs to know immediately that you need to fight danger or you need to escape danger so and to make it a bit more complicated a bit more quirky not complicated probably a bit funky then bacteria actually talk to those nerves that are innervating the whole of the gut that are part of this an enteral nervous system which is connected to the to the vagus nerve they are mm-hmm. collecting bits and pieces of information from their from the environment they are sensing is there inflammation? Is there, um, what about short chain fatty acids like butyric acid? Is it in plenty of quantity? Is it low? What types of bacteria? All of that information, like big data, is being collected all the time and sent to the, to the amygdala, where it's being processed in various parts of the amygdala. And it does that by, it reaches there by means of molecules like the short chain fatty acids, like the butyrate, the propionate, and the acetate. Acetate is a bit like um, like vinegar, it actually is very similar to to vinegar, to like plain vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and propionic acid is um, when you get cheese that's got bubbles in the cheese, um, like Swiss cheese, you know, like the typical yep. cheese you see in cartoons or in an emoji. <laughs> Those yeah. bubbles are actually created by bacteria that are kind of uh, farting into the milk mm-hmm. and basically just producing a bubble. Uh, that's propionic acid, basically, that you've got in there. And you've got immune molecules like secretory IgA, which is part of the mucus that is feeding back to the brain and saying, you, when you switch on the produce mucus kind of command, you don't need to produce more of secretory IgA because there is plenty. So there's this kind of like feedback mechanism. There's neuropeptides like leptin uh, that tells the, the brain that, uh, right, so you don't need to eat anymore because I'm actually satiated now. Um, ghrelin and other bits and pieces like that. Serotonin, the same thing. So the brain is producing its own serotonin, but the gut is producing its own serotonin. So, so to avoid a situation where you produce too much serotonin, which is going to make you feel rough because you need to excrete it and detoxify it, then uh, you need to talk. You know, the gut and the brain need to talk so they are not producing too much. So this is all uh, happening uh, at the same time. It's, really a lot of data going from the gut to the brain and the bacteria are key. So you've got low levels of bacteria or low levels of diversity. The communication is going to be 
more, uh, it's going to be poorer, it's going to be more scrambled, it's going to be more fussy, the brain is not really going to know what goes on so much. If you've got an overgrowth of bacteria, that may be too much noise. It's almost like when you run a search on Google and you get like 3 billion results and you think, shit, what do I do with that? <laughs> just need one paper, you know, yeah. I don't need like 30,000 papers. Just give me the one paper I need to read. So the brain is a bit like that, you know, can you tell me clearly what is going on so I can do something? Because I'm only able to do yes and no things based on the complexity that I'm analyzing. So that's basically that, that kind of uh, the directional communication between the gut and the brain is... Um, it's fascinating stuff, and of course, Spanish words. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got great the schematics in the paper as well, and of course, yeah, really interesting stuff in terms of all the different routes of communication, whether it's competition, diversity of the gut. You know, you mentioned the neurotransmitters, hormones, neuropeptides, the the, the physical barriers in the gut, all influencing this. Um, and if we come back to the the connection here between a leaky gut and a leaky brain, could you maybe highlight from like a symptom-based perspective or you know, client-based perspective how these things are connected and, and, and maybe some red flags for folks? Yeah, so it's, this is an emerging kind of theory, although uh, as everything in science, it's, it takes a while for things to uh, consolidate and, uh, and be reported properly. And especially if you're talking about human kind of uh, science, it can take, you know, 10, 20 years for something to be confirmed, you know, Absolutely. but we know from animals that the blood brain barrier uh, shares a certain, uh, well, in fact, I've, I've, it, it's very similar to the, uh, to the gut lining in terms of, uh, uh, it's got, um, these things called tight junctions. So you've got, imagine a tight junction is a bit like a, a brick wall where you've got your bricks and you've got your mortar in between the bricks. And the mortar is the is the tight junction, and the tight junction can be like very narrow, like an alleyway, or it can be really broad. It could be like Broadway. So you've got like a tight junction that's like Broadway, and you've got food on top, uh, kind of like circulating in you know on its way out to the to 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 be passed as a, a stool in the gut. There's more chances that undigested food may actually may it find its way to the uh, to the other side of the wall where the immune system is kind of waiting and thinking, right, so there's a molecule here I'm picking up on. I think it may be apple, but because it's not fully digested, I think it may be uh, gluten instead. And actually, because I'm not really happy with gluten, I'm going to react to it. So this is this can happen. This is kind of like one of the things that happens with permeability. That's, just, that's in the gut. And there are two key molecules. One is occludin. Occludin is from occlure, from Latin, basically it means to close. And sonulin is another molecule that helps occludin close this junction. So it doesn't, it's not always like a broadway, it's very, a very narrow alleyway. And that way if you keep it tight, you know, you keep that mortar very tight and those bricks really close together, you minimize the chances of the immune system being activated unnecessarily. More than anything, because the immune system takes a lot of battery out of your own energy, so if you have somebody who's presenting with low energy, chronic fatigue, you know, inability to think, uh, fussy thinking, foggy brain, you know, all of this kind of stuff, and uh, and that's been going on for a while. It's not just you're tired one week because, you know, you've had a lot of work. It's kind of like quite chronic situation. And you find that oh, there could be leaky gut, there could be dysbiosis. These things are likely to be connected. And the reason why they are connected is because that person has got 
a certain amount of power in a battery that runs all of the processes in the body. The immune system sucks up a lot of the battery, like in your iPhone or something. You've got 100 apps open. They're going to suck up your, your battery life. You need to close a few of those processes. And the, the less activated the immune system is, the better. Uh, in the brain, it's kind of like the same. So the brain is even, you know, the, the, the junctions are even tighter uh, because the brain doesn't like a lot of crap coming into it because it's a very delicate environment and it, it's, it doesn't like to be disturbed. So only a few things can actually travel through this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which is like a very thin layer that's very similar to the, to the gut lining between your, you know, the top of your neck and your brain. So it's basically just there, kind of a, a physical barrier that is like a filter, like a coffee filter stopping the kind of like the ground coffee coming up and spoiling your coffee. Well, it's, it stops all sorts of things from germs, viruses, um, uh, heavy metals, you know, certain nutrients cannot make it to the brain. So like and neurotransmitters, you know, like um, dopamine, for example, is a challenge in people with Parkinson's because levodopa is not very, only a tiny amount actually makes it into the brain. So you need to yep. give somebody a high dose. And so it's kind of like a, a, a very tight filter, but it's, it shares the same molecules that open and close those junctions to enable things to go in, you know, uh, um, and obviously, I'm oversimplifying this. It's a lot more complicated, but this is kind of like the, the basic process as to how these things work. So if you have somebody with, uh, the theory is that if you have somebody with dysregulation in how these tight junctions work, and they are constantly more uh, open than close, and they become kind of like lax, you know, the ability to close them becomes um, uh, disrupted, you could assume that there's going to be a certain amount of, of that um, same dysregulation in the blood-brain barrier. And of course, you can measure these things. There are very sophisticated tests out there. You know, various labs will allow you to do that and, you know, commercially and so on. I'm very, always very uh, careful as to how people spend the money. Um, and I, because I think as clinicians, we have the ability to pick up on these signals and, and to work with, um, with signs that present clinically on the basis of, you know, a number of things. You don't always need to test all the time, but if you have the ability to test and people have got loads of dollars to spend in testing, it may be useful to actually say, okay, I'm going to see how my occluding and sunlight are doing in my blood-brain barrier so I can do something about it. Yeah, I mean, it's very well said in terms of after you see you know, so many patients with similar um, symptom presentations or um, condition presentations, we tend to get a sense of what's going on. But of course, biomarkers yeah. are really helpful, especially for practitioners. Yeah. So can you maybe uh, share some of those key biomarkers uh, in terms of assessing uh, gut function, that gut brain function? Yeah, so I think for me, um, uh, literature on this is, is, um, is quirky because it's booming after, you know, people who've been doing kind of like functional medicine, uh, you know, you guys in, in on the other side of the pond, mm -hmm. the naturopathic doctors and so on, you've known about the gut-brain connection for like donkey's years. This is kind of like news now for like mainstream science. So the gut-brain connection, you know, the gut health and so on, it's kind of like a boom. And uh, so a lot of the science is actually still based on animal data because the the process is that you look at things under a microscope, very basic kind of kind of science, then you move on to animal science and then on to human trials. And the human trials are 
only slowly kind of being produced. So when you look at all of that conglomerate of uh, um, evidence, really, uh, the one thing that sticks out for human data is diversity. So uh, microbial diversity, whichever uh, condition you look at, is always going to be uh, um, uh, negatively associated. So better diversity uh, basically means uh, less chances of getting whatever condition you want to mention. The big ones, you know, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, you know, mental health, um, neurodegeneration. You pick up whatever you want, uh, go on PubMed and run a few searches, and you're always going to find that whatever you're looking for, if you've got better diversity, you're more protected. So that's a given. You know, if you've got a test that tells you about diversity and it's a reliable test, then that's always going to be a good one. Um, obviously, a breakdown of the bacteria as well. So um, I would always go for a test that's got this thing called the 16S technology, which is looking at, uh, um, at RNA of uh, bacteria. So it's almost like a genetic test that like you can do a 23andMe test on a human. You can break down the kind of uh, the, the, the genomics of a uh, um, microbes and find out, then create a catalog that allows you to classify them and to measure them in the gut. And uh, so any test using 16S technology allow you to then create your own map of your, of your gut. And that's always useful because you may find that you've got very low numbers of lactobacilli. And then it's really good if you want to supplement to know that lactobacillus uh, supplements will be better for you than other supplements, for example. So that's always useful. Um, sunulin uh, is, is really well reported now. There's uh, uh, plenty of human data confirming that is used um, is useful for uh, this what we've discussed the intestinal permeability situation, but also because you can improve sunulin by means of a uh, um, uh, um, very simple food-based recommendations, then you're improving sonulin in the blood-brain barrier as well, which may help. So things like uh, a whey supplementation or um, lactoferrin supplementation has been seen in trials to, to help with um, reducing levels of sonulin, uh, which is interesting because they are inexpensive. You can do them without having to plan a lot. Um, so sonulin definitely add would some be more good. protein to the diet. I mean, it's a win-win on all sides, right? Exactly. Yeah, and short-chain fatty acids as well. So short-chain fatty acids are tricky because they can, whereas uh, when you've got a map of your gut, it could change the following week. Um, it's likely to change a little bit, but it's not likely to be completely different from one week to another. Short-chain fatty acids can actually change in a test from one day to the next according to what you've eaten. Um, but it does give you an idea if people have got overall low short-chain fatty acids and particularly the butyric acid, which is very well reported in literature in both animal and human science, uh, it gives you an idea of their ability to, um, to fight inflammation, particularly in the gut, but also in other uh, areas of the body. So butyrate has been... Um, uh, has been reported to help with uh, mitochondrial health, for example. Anybody who knows what a mitochondria is, which is basically uh, the power plant of uh, of all cells in the body. Absolutely. If you've got better mitochondrial activity, you're less likely to get things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and stroke and 
you know, chronic fatigue and all of these kind of things. So just eating certain types of foods that give you that ability to get more butyrate going on, all fiber sources and soluble fiber particularly, that's going to be a really good one. So for me, sunulin, short-chain fatty acids, diversity, and uh, and a breakdown of the of the bacteria in the gut so you know what to tackle particularly so you've got too much you know proteobacteria you need to do something about it you've got too little lactobacilli you need to do something about it so that's my 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 take that's terrific miguel and how do plant compounds things like polyphenols influence that gut microbiota diversity and health okay so uh, polyphenols are actually very interesting because after about 10 years ago, people talked about polyphenols as antioxidants. And uh, and now if you talk to um, scientists who are working with polyphenols, they'll tell you uh, t- they are not antioxidants, which is nonsense because they are antioxidants. They do fight free radicals. But the new school of thought is more along the lines of they are, are very uh, bioactive molecules that they also do other things in the body. Uh, particularly, they act as communication molecules. Um, so... Uh, and they also uh, feed bacteria in the gut, so they are prebiotic. So in 2014, there was a consensus paper published in Nature, in Nature Communications, that actually kind of discussed all of the the new types of prebiotics and, and established a definition of prebiotic. And one of the new types was uh, uh, the polyphenols. And another type was omega-3s, which is quite um, striking as well, because I, I never thought myself of uh, omega-3s as being prebiotic, but they do have this ability to feed the gut bacteria as well. But coming back to the polyphenols, uh, they're basically really good because they're available from, you know, you don't need to spend hundreds of dollars in polyphenol-rich uh, supplements. They are there in your food. So you've got a diet that's got uh, red peppers and broccoli and uh, carrots and uh, uh, watermelon and uh, cocoa, uh, you know, every food that's got uh, an intense color, that pigment in in that food is an indication that they are rich in in these phenolic compounds that, that account to a certain extent for the color of that food. And and they I like to think of them, because I know you're into sport and so on, I like to think of them as, as footballs. So you're playing soccer in the uh, you know in the gut and you've got your players are the bacteria and you've got these footballs and they get excited and they sweat as they play football or you know soccer. And uh, and this sweat is short chain fatty acids basically so your your bugs are playing with these balls that are the polyphenols they cannot really break them down so they come out the other end pretty intact uh and they only are able to shave a little thing out of the of the uh of the molecules and in doing that in getting excited they secrete the short chain fatty acids and another very interesting thing is when you eat um, polyphenols, when you eat a, a food rich in polyphenols like um, cocoa, for example, or tea, and uh, your own body will have its own enzymes to get into the polyphenol and uh, almost like key into a keyhole in the polyphenol and release the goodness of the polyphenol into the body. And uh, what you do as well, you open that box that is the polyphenol and another box comes up and uh, your body cannot do anything with it, so it's kind of like a in a secret box with no keyhole to your human kind of uh, uh, body. But the bacteria have got keys to that box, 
So they opened that box and they released some extra goodness. And this is reported in things like kombucha, for example. So kombucha will give you access to extra catechins from the tea that's been fermented because of the fermentation process. So as a human, you couldn't get the same catechins from the tea that you drink as, as a hot drink because they are locked and you haven't got the enzymes to break them down. But those bugs in your gut are actually in a symbiotic relationship with you. So they are allowing you to get access to those catechins, which is wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing how through evolution, we sort of outsourced a lot of these tasks to those uh, bacteria yeah. friends of ours. And uh, you're mentioning polyphenols. It was over the past summer there, I got a chance to go to the International Society of Exercise and Immunology. And Dr. David Neiman was showing the top 40 list of top polyphenol foods. And I was delighted to see uh, yeah, coffee and dark chocolate there in the top five. So for, coffee, for, yes, for anybody who's trying I to add more coffee. of those in. And actually, exactly. even, even beer was on the list, people. so that's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, beer is good as well. Yeah, exactly. Hops, you've got like uh, lovely flavonols in there. I, uh, I live on coffee, which some people find astonishing because they think I'm like, I've got this very pure lifestyle, so I haven't got any gluten or coffee or anything in my diet. Gluten, I haven't got very much of, but coffee, plenty, you know, so yeah, I love coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, listen, I want to respect your time here, Miguel, and circling back here to the idea of sort of, you know, stress and the role it plays in all of this, you know, for me, working with clients and, and various athletes, um, come to realize that their own personality type or the stress in their lives is such a big uh, player in not only their mood, but also in terms of the gut and the health of the gut. Can you touch on uh, the impact of those uh, areas and, and what you've seen in your practice? Yeah, sure. So you've got a situation that stress actually uh, um, feeds um, a certain amount of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines that can have that same kind of uh, effect on the gut as we talked about with excess exercise. So there's, there could be micro um, micro times during the day or during a week that you have increased permeability. Uh, this is something that, again, it used to be a very kind of uh, alternative kind of concept, but it's something that's been explored by people who are absolutely non alternative, like Professor Cryan and his team at the University of Cork in Ireland, for example, have done a, a huge amount of work on this kind of uh, the impact of um, uh, um, of the of stress and anxiety on the uh, on the human gut. And they agree that there's a situation where the, uh, um, the, the the amount of free radicals that are produced by the increase uh, levels of inflammation as a result of an anxiety situation and as a result of an excess of the of the um, uh, um, hormones that are producing the adrenal glands that I mentioned before, the cortisol, the adrenaline or adrenaline. So that has an impact, a tangible impact on, on the gut, which is, um, uh, which is measurable. Uh, sonulin is one of the markers. Uh, and, and it's all to do with a disrupted intestinal barrier. So the tight junctions are part of it, but the barrier actually allows to for, for nutrients to travel and for other substances like free radicals to travel into the bloodstream uh, via other um, 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 mechanisms, so just through the cell as well. And so you've got a situation that that wall between the gut and the, and the bloodstream is disrupted, and that uh, anxiety fits into it. Um, cognitive dysfunction as well fits into it as bi bidirectional. Impaired social function as well fits into it. So if you've got a, an inability to, to, to work a crowd or you, you feel stressed by a social situation, that may actually fit into that 
that ability for your gut to repair itself. And it's, again, it's bidirectional. And depression as well. So people with depression tend to have lower diversity in their gut and uh, and a certain amount of um, permeability um, that is higher compared to to controls. Miguel, terrific insights. And uh, you know, before we wrap up here, last last couple of questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. What's the evolution? Do you think of research on gut microbiota biomarkers in health? You know, where are we going to be? Do you think in the next sort of five or ten years? Well, we're going to be a lot more precise in terms of how we can we can target things. So at the moment, we know that increasing diversity is good, and we know that uh, uh, you know certain bacteria may be doing uh, better than other bacteria at controlling specific markers, like you know specific cytokines. So you can um, downregulate inflammation in the body. At the moment, everything is a bit woolly, a bit kind of a hypothet- hypothetical. I think in five years' time, we'll probably be able to say, right, so you've got somebody with loads of anxiety, kind of on a bit of an overdrive, uh, with too much dopamine in their body, so they cannot get rid of it, and, uh, you know, they feel anxious all the time. Um, Let's say, just, you know, just for argument's sake, that lactobacillus rotary uh, at X dose, you know, billions and billions of that in um, in one dose a day, has the ability to... Uh, allow you to clear the dopamine and to make you feel more, more relaxed. That's a more pharmacological kind of uh, aspect of, I think, where research may be going. I uh, will know better about all the uh, biomarkers that are to do with uh, uh, um, uh, gut barrier function and how things like cocoa flavonols, for example, may help with that and repair it or you know, certain nutraceuticals as well. So I think that's a very important part as, of, of where things are going. And the area that I'm most excited about, because I'm doing some some work on uh, on that at uh, South Bank University uh, at this thing called the London Agri-Food Innovation Center or clinic, uh, LAFIC. Uh, we're looking at how um, a food matrix like a kombucha or a kefir or a, even a bone broth, which is um, to a certain extent fermented, Mm-hmm. has got the ability to repair uh, the ecosystem in the gut and how you can then correlate that with mood, for example. So if you've got somebody who is a student who is very stressed out, if they drink kombucha during the exam times, how do they feel as a result of that over a month or about two months compared to another student that's just drinking water or Coca-Cola, you know, whatever. Um, so that's kind of, you know, at the moment it's very experimental, very kind of, let's see what happens. Uh, I think in five years time, we'll be able to be very precise, you know, do kombucha with a specific type of tea, you know, what happens when you do a kombucha with black tea as opposed to green tea? What are the effects? Uh, you know, it, it will be a lot more precise. Using foods for me is a lot more exciting than using a high power nutraceutical, but I do like nutraceuticals when they are needed. And I think there's a lot of scope in, in developing very interesting nutraceuticals as well. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I look forward to a lot of your, uh, your results and findings on that. And if we zoom back out here to 30,000 feet and just, you know, for listeners, clients, athletes listening in, what's the biggest take home message that you might give on the topic of gut microbiota and health? 
that you uh, have the power to uh, manipulate your gut very easily with the food that you eat, but also with your thoughts. And I think the thoughts kind of um, area is a bit more woolly. People think of it, uh, well, I don't really need to think, worry about what I'm thinking because it doesn't have as much impact as what I'm eating. I think it's as, as powerful as the food. And uh, have a diet that is very colorful. So whether you eat a lot or you eat uh, less quantity, always make sure that you've got a plenty of, uh, you know, like eating a rainbow every day of uh, different colors from uh, plants. And uh, if you eat animal foods, choose animal foods that have got different colors as well, because they will give you different compounds that help the bacteria do various funky things that will make you feel wonderful and look great. So that's my take. Fantastic, Miguel. Well, listen, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all of your terrific work and research? Uh, well, I'm sure you're going to post this on the website, but my social media is pretty active on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so I'm both uh, Miguel Mateas, just at Miguel Mateas uh, uh, on both of them. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm posting stuff there daily, uh, otherwise on my website as well, which is I'm, I'm just working on and is, uh, the new website is going to be out next week. So uh, yeah, miguelmateas.com. Fantastic. Well, listen, Miguel, thanks so much again for taking the time. We'll definitely include a link to the paper discussed here. And of course, those links as well to the Instagram, social media and, and website at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you guys have any questions for Miguel or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. So you can reach out as well on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, your comments are greatly appreciated. Definitely keep them coming. And if you enjoyed the show, take a minute, subscribe on iTunes and share with friends and colleagues. All right. Thanks again, everyone. And see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.